The great Baptist pastor, Charles Spurgeon, once said, Like the Spartans, every Christian is a born warrior. It is his destiny to be assaulted. It is his duty to attack. Part of his life will be occupied with defensive armor. He will have to defend earnestly the faith once delivered unto the saints. He will have to resist the devil. He will have to stand against all his wiles, and having done all, to still be standing. The idea of a disciple of Jesus being a warrior may sound strange to our modern ears. Uh, the idea of Christianity being part of spiritual battle isn't overly common, uh, but it is language that is very, very common to Scripture. And some would wonder, why would disciples of Jesus be warriors? And the answer is, we are disciples of Jesus. The moment we say yes to Jesus, we make an, an enemy. When we surrender to Christ as Lord over our lives, we set ourselves up against Satan to be his enemy. And so we are in a battle. Our enemy is real. He is armed. He is dangerous. His one goal is to steal, kill, and destroy as much as possible in our lives. His desire is to keep us from God, to keep us from serving Christ, to keep us from doing the things Jesus would have us to do. And we must be able to defend ourselves against the attacks of the enemy. So that's what the armor of God is about. It is about setting ourselves up in defiance of all that Satan would seek to do in our lives, in our families, in our churches, and in our communities. Today we're going to continue our study on the armor of God by looking at the shield of faith. So go ahead and open your Bible to Ephesians 6. We're going to look at verses 10 through 17. I'll read all of the verses, but primarily we're going to look at verse 16 today. Uh, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. <coughs> Scripture says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth having on the breastplate of righteousness your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The title of the message today is the shield of faith. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come today and we do want to raise the shield of faith against the enemy and all that he would bring into our lives. Help us to, to be strong in you and in the power of your might. Help us to stand. Uh, and Lord, while, while what's going on in our world today, it is a physical thing. Lord, there is a spiritual component to all things that happen. Satan who would seek to stir up fear, panic in the hearts of people, cause us to doubt, cause us to worry. So guide us to stand. Help us to raise the shield of faith and help us to be bold and courageous for you in this time. Help us to be lights that would shine brightly for Jesus. God, our church, and help us to know what we would do and what we ought to do if it would come to our community. God, today, and fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You may be seated. The Roman soldiers had two basic shields they used. One was a small round shield. The other was a large rectangular shield. What Paul is describing is the, the large one. It was usually about two feet by four feet. It was made of wood covered with leather. The edges of the shields were constructed so an entire line of soldiers could lock their shields together and make a wall to protect those behind the shield bearers. Uh, that's the picture Paul has in mind for this verse. He, he calls the shield the shield of faith. Now to understand how this shield protects us, we have to understand what's meant by faith. Now, as disciples, we're familiar with the idea salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But as we think about the shield of faith, we're thinking about more than the idea of saving faith. Right? It's not just that we believe in Jesus, but really it's the idea that we believe Jesus. Now, that's what Paul is speaking of here. A, a faith that not only believes in Jesus for the salvation of our souls, a faith that believes Jesus and guides our life. Not just a belief that Jesus existed. Not just a belief Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again. Now obviously that would be a part of what is meant by faith, but it's not limited to that. It is not only believing in Jesus, but it is believing Jesus. And there is a difference. right? If I believe Jesus, then that impacts the way I live my life. If I believe Jesus, I will make decisions and how I live and the way I act based upon my belief. Belief, faith, always leads to action. But the kind of faith Paul is speaking of that guards us against the enemy is not just the kind of faith that mentally acknowledges certain things to be true, but it is the kind of faith that would guide my life. That I would make life-altering decisions based upon what Jesus has said. Based upon who Jesus is. Right? Faith is always more than just a, a, a mental knowledge. It, it is more than just I accept these things to be true in my mind. Faith, true faith, always involves actions on our part. Right? Because faith without works is dead. Right? And the idea... Of faith without works. Often what we want to do is we want to try to say faith without works isn't best. Or faith without works is deficient. But that's not what it says. What it says is faith without works is dead. Now, given the Bible's focus on life and death, spiritual life and spiritual death, surely we would all agree that what Paul is saying, what Scripture says, is faith which doesn't move us to action, really isn't faith. True faith is always seen in what we do in response to what we believe. And I could, I mean, I could give you all kinds of examples. I could tell you I had a million dollars in cash behind the pulpit. And it would be given to the first person that ran up here and got it. Your reaction to that would tell me whether or not you believe me. If you sat in your pew and laughed, it's because you don't believe me. 
You don't believe I have the resources to give that kind of money, or you don't believe I have the willingness to give that kind of money. If, on the other hand, you step on small children to run up here and get it, I'm going to understand you believe. You believe I have the money. You believe I'll give that kind of money. I could say, I believe if I stand on the pew and fall back, Scott could catch me. But am I willing to stand on the pew and fall back and let Scott catch me? No. No, I'm not. Right? I'm not. Faith, huh? Faith is always seen by actions. And where there are no actions based upon faith, there is no genuine faith. Now, this kind of faith that, that moves us to action is critical as we try to understand the shield of faith. The shield of faith protects us, the Bible says, against the, the fiery darts of the wicked. In fact, it says it will quench them. Now, a common tactic during this time, a, a war tactic, was to dip arrows in some sort of pitch or flammable thick liquid. The archers would then shoot the flaming arrows at people, which when it, when it hit them, it obviously caught things on fire, and they were almost like little incendiary bombs as they hit. It was almost like a Motov cocktail. When they hit, the fire spread all over the person who was hit by them. So what Roman soldiers often did was they, they waterlogged that piece of leather over their shield so that when the flaming arrows hit, it was put out. It was the water and the wetness put out the fire. And so what we see is Satan is going to shoot arrows at us. And these arrows, if they strike, they're going to burn. They're going to explode in our lives and cause problems, death, destruction. All of the things Satan wants to bring to our lives. And the shield of faith is able to quench these fiery darts. Now, the kind of arrows, the kind of darts Satan will shoot will vary from person to person. But they're always with the same goal. They're trying to destroy our faith. They're trying to bring death and to steal, kill, and destroy in our lives. And so what I want to do this morning is, I want to show you. I've got, there's all kinds. Again, the fiery darts are going to vary from person to person. But there are probably three that are common. And I want to show you how the shield of faith can quench what Satan will shoot at our life. Now, the most common one we would think of would be sinful temptation. Clearly, one of the things Satan wants to do is inflame sinful desires within us. We're familiar with the idea of sinful temptation. Temptations can come in many forms. It can be lustful thoughts, lying, gossip, a judgmental attitude, crude jokes, hateful speech, covetousness, racism, envy, cussing, outbursts of anger, any number of of other things. And when Satan shoots these fiery darts of temptation at us, typically what he wants to do is make us to believe a lie along with it. But I mean, he doesn't tempt us with covetousness and say this is covetousness, this is a sin. Instead, he tries to make us believe a lie. And the shield of faith helps us to believe the truth rather than a lie. So that it will quench that fiery dart. Now I want to show you what I, I would say what I think are the four most common lies going along with sinful temptation. Right? It, it's no big deal. Now that's, that, boy I tell you what, that's, that's our culture in a heartbeat. Sin's no big deal. 
No matter what it is. You, you pick the sin, unless you're just mass murdering people, it's not that big of a deal, whatever your sin is. So what's the corresponding truth that, that helps quench that fiery dart? Well, the truth is, all sin really is a big deal. Because it is a reflection of what's going on in my heart. And the scripture goes with that. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Really everything. So when that temptation comes, this sin is no big deal. And we give in to it. It is a big deal. Because it reveals the condition of my heart. It shows what's going on in here. So we raise the shield of faith by saying that's a lie. It is a big deal. Because it reveals the condition of my heart. All of this comes out of my heart. Another temptation is no one will know. Man, this is a big thing. right? And I've mentioned before, when you look at politicians or famous people that get caught doing really bad things, why do they do that? Why do politicians carry on affairs? With, with other people. In, in a day in which the internet and everything is so common. Because they've convinced themselves no one will ever know. They're smarter than anybody else in the world that's gone before them. No one will ever know what they're doing. So what's the truth that goes along with this? All sin. Even secret sin. Will eventually be revealed and judged. Right? And, and so scripture says some men's sins are open beforehand. Going before to judgment. And some men, their sin follows after. So here's the, re- here's the truth. The truth is there is no such thing as secret sin. Maybe no person ever knows. Maybe no other human ever sees or knows what you did or what I did. But God knows. And so we fool the world. But then we stand before the one who sees all and knows all. And judges us based upon the things we've done in our lives. Satan says no one will know if you look at this, you act like this, you do this. The shield of faith says no. All sin will be revealed and judged. Because God sees all and God knows all. Another lie Satan will bring is you deserve this. Man, this is huge. How many... People who commit adultery, cheat on their spouse, do so because they deserve better than what their spouse is giving them. How many people embezzle funds because they deserve more than what their company is paying them? You deserve this. Nothing really works quite like appealing to our pride. I do deserve better than what I'm giving. I do. I'm pretty awesome. So what's the corresponding truth? We always reap what we sow. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. When I sin, you know what I deserve? I deserve the consequences. But God has no favorites who get to sin and it's okay. God isn't looking down at us and saying, you're right. You do deserve that. It is okay if you do that. I agree with you. Instead, God's looking down and saying, you're going to reap what you sow. No matter who you are, what your reasoning is. 
And then a fourth lie is you just don't have a choice. Again, I think this is so common in, in our culture. This is how you were born. This is who you are. You've got to live your truth. You'll never be happy if you don't. On and on and on it goes. All to say the same thing. You have no choice. So what's the truth? I have no obligation whatsoever to do what my sinful nature desires. To fulfill the desires of my sinful nature. We are debtors. But not to the flesh. To live after the flesh. But if you're a born again disciple of Jesus... You have no obligation to give in to your sinful temptations. Never do you have to. You can resist it always. So the devil says you might as well give in. You're not going to be able to resist this forever. You're going to give in. Just go ahead and do it now. This is who you are. This is what you're like. This is all you'll ever be. And the shield of faith says no. I don't have to live this way. I don't have to act this way. God has saved me and Jesus has made me to something new. Now, whatever our temptation is, there are corresponding biblical truths to help us. To raise the shield of faith. To quench the fiery darts. See, that's what's happened. One, probably if I were to go around and say, do you believe for every one of your temptations? There is a corresponding biblical truth that will help you resist it. Hopefully, we would all say yes. Here's the question. Here's here's where that faith is really seen. Do you do it? Do you look in Scripture and find the truth that fights your temptation? Do you, in the moment of temptation, raise that up and tell yourself the truth so that you can push back against it? Or... Do we believe one of the devil's lies and go on into it? Now there is one verse that is, it's both beautiful and convicting. And it is an overall that gives us the truth we need, no matter our temptation. And it gives us the corresponding actions of faith that flow. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So the truth to believe, no temptation is unique to me. Now this doesn't mean we're all tempted by the same things. But it means I'm not tempted more than anyone else is. I can't say, well, you, you, Gerald, you just don't understand what it's like to be me and to be tempted like this. Because Gerald would then say, no, I don't, but you don't know what it's like to be me and to be tempted like this because my temptations are not unusual. They're not unique. We're all tempted in one way or another. Not only is that a truth, but it's also a truth that I'm never so tempted I'm backed into a corner and have no way out but sin. God is faithful. He will not suffer you to be tempted above what what you're able to bear. So that's the truth. So I'm tempted. And and I don't know about you, but I feel sometimes my temptations are unique. I'm tempted to think my temptations are stronger than other people's. I'm tempted to think I don't have a way out of my temptation, but to give into it. But that's not the truth. So what do I do? If I believe Scripture, that I'm not tempted any differently than anyone else, and that 
God won't let me be tempted to the point that I have to sin. What do I do? What does my faith do? It leads me to look for the way of escape. God will also make a way of escape. So what I do in that moment to raise the shield of faith is I remind myself of the truth and then I act upon my faith. Now, how I act upon my faith may vary. It may mean I have to turn off my computer and leave the room. It may mean I have to break off a conversation with somebody and walk away. It may mean I have to just duck my head and bite my tongue so that I don't say what I want to say. It may mean that I have to turn off the television or walk out of the room. It may mean I have to do any number of things, but to escape, I have to do something. And so the shield of faith will quench the fiery darts of the wicked as I believe this truth. There is no temptation taking me but such as common to man. So I believe the truth that God is faithful and He will never let me be tempted beyond what I'm able to bear. And then I look for that way of escape God has promised will be there and I take it. That is how I raise the shield of faith. That is how I demonstrate I not only believe in Jesus, but I believe Jesus. And that will quench the fiery darts and enable me to overcome in that moment. And in this time of sinful temptation, that's an evil day, isn't it? And I need to be able to stand an evil day and having done all to still be standing, I raise the shield of faith. Another fiery dart Satan may send is discouragement, despair, or disillusionment. He does this in times where it feels like our world is falling apart. We lose our job. Our finances are in ruin. Our relationships are breaking up. Our marriage is struggling. We're having problems in our relationship with our children. Our loved ones are sick, dying, or maybe have already tragically died. We, we already feel overwhelmed at life. Any number of other difficulties we experience. Satan specializes at kicking people when they're down. And he's not kind. He doesn't see that we're down and struggling and be like, oh, I'll just leave them alone. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. So when we're down, he pounces. And he comes to make it even worse. And he shoots the fiery darts of discouragement, despair, and disillusionment. And these things, these darts make us want to wallow in self-pity. Now, let me be clear on this. When I talk about wallowing in self-pity, I'm not just saying acknowledging this is bad and it's hard and it hurts. Right? That's just reality. That's just being honest about what's going on. When we wallow in self-pity, we don't try to keep going with God. We just kind of give up. What's the point? Everything stinks. Everything's so hard. I quit. Keep in mind, Satan doesn't need us to give in to sinful temptation to win in our lives. All he has to do is keep us from serving God. And if he can do that by causing us to wallow in our own self-pity and just feeling terribly sorry for ourselves, that's still a win for him. But he, these fiery darts, they convince us. This hard time, it's a sure sign God doesn't love us. I mean, because, I mean, if God loved you, why would that happen? Why would your loved one die like that? Didn't you pray for God to make them better? 
Why would your marriage be struggling? Didn't you pray? And didn't you work really hard yourself? Why is everything so overwhelming and hard to you? Or aren't you reading your Bible and praying? Shouldn't God help you in this time? Surely you can see God doesn't care about you. If He did, you wouldn't go through this. The shield of faith is just as effective against this fiery dart as it is against the others. And just like all the others... It starts with believing God. So turn to Romans 8, verse 31. should be page 863 in the Pew I wish we had time to just dig deep into Romans 8. It's probably the greatest chapter in the Bible. And we're only going to look at a very small portion of it. Take some time this week and just read Romans 8, particularly... If Satan is shooting a fiery dart of discouragement, despair, disillusionment, read it slowly, read it carefully, just let it soak into your soul. And I'll read the whole chapter and then we'll just, or this whole part, and we'll come back. Verse 31, Romans 8. What shall we say? What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword, as it is written, for thy sake... We are killed all the day long and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how do we fight against discouragement, despair, and disillusion. We believe God is for us. That's what this passage is about, right? If God be for us, who can be against us? So, in those times, I remember, God is for me. God is for me. So, in this passage, Paul lays out several ways God is for us, right? So, God is for us in the face of accusations. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He wants to accuse us and make us feel condemned. And and that's what it talks about. Who shall lay a charge against us? Is it God? Well, no. But God's the one that justifies us. Well, then is is it Jesus? Well, no. Jesus is the one that died for us and rose again. And now is at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. So who brings an accusation against us? The answer is no one that matters. No one that matters. So in the face of these accusations, God is for us. God is for us when life is hard. In verse 35, he asks, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And and he then begins to list circumstances that we would all say are bad. Right? Tribulation. It would be trials or suffering of any sort that would come into our life. Distress. Distress would be to suffer anguish or stress or to be overwhelmed. Really, it kind of pictures being overwhelmed. Persecution. 
This is specifically suffering for our faith in Jesus. Famine. That means we don't have enough to, to take care of our basic necessities of life. Nakedness. This would refer to being stripped of clothing as well as all earthly comforts. Peril. Be exposed to danger of some sort and in a sword. To suffer actual physical persecution. Pain. Possibly even death. So we would all say those are, those are bad days. Those are bad things. And the question Paul is asking. Do our experiencing these things mean God is not for us anymore? Does it mean that God has given up and He has abandoned us? Well, Paul answers his own question. He goes on in verse 36 and says, even though we're, we're killed all the day long. But, nay. Nay, those things haven't separated us from the love of Christ. In fact, we are more than conquerors through Christ, despite these circumstances ultimately victory is ours through jesus who loved us died for us and rose again and now lives ever making intercession for us hard times are going to come into all of our lives and no matter how hard or how bad it is god is still for us and then god is for us so long as life continues for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing separates us from God's love. At no point does God ever go from being for us to being against us as His children. The crucifixion, the death of Jesus on the cross answers once and for all, God is for me. And if I am a believer, I am a disciple of Jesus, God is for me. What if my life is hard because of my mistake? God is for me. What if the accusations are legit and I have done bad things? God is for me. What if life continues to be hard? As I continue to make bad decisions. God is for me. God is for us. As believers in Jesus Christ. No matter the circumstance we find ourselves in. No matter how severe. How painful. How bad. Jesus will be with us through it. God is for us and he will not be against us. And we raise the shield of faith by believing what God has said in his word. And it may be we have to read this day after day after day. Memorize it. Quote it. Say the verses that God is for me and not against me. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. I am more than a conqueror through Christ who loved me. I don't know what we have to do in order to act on it, but whatever we have to do it. We have to raise the shield by saying this is true no matter how I feel or what's going on. And then believing it and living as though it were true. And then finally, fear. Now fear was not a part of my original outline. But this has been an interesting week. Fear is the message of the day. And the message has been well received by our culture. The pictures of empty shelves at Walmart. 
the stories of Amazon being out of toilet paper, the closings, social media, all of these things reveal the message of fear has been well received by our culture. Now this isn't to say there aren't legitimate concerns. There are. But there's a difference between legitimate concerns and fear-driven actions. And Satan is an expert at taking legitimate concerns and making them so overwhelmingly large that it produces fear-driven actions. Our need in this time in which we find ourselves, and in however long this goes on, and, and really just for the future, right? Because the media is always trying to stir up fear in us. Right now, it's just a very particular kind of fear. But there's always something we're to be afraid of. And our need is to find the balance between understanding the legitimate concerns and the wisdom we need to act in in those times and the foolishness of a panic-induced state. The shield of faith does this by helping us focus on God rather than our fears. Psalm 27 is another one. Pastor, I wish we had time to just go there and read it and, and meditate on it, but we don't today. Read it this week. Read Romans 8 and then go to Psalm 27 and just read those over and over all week long. We just have time for this one verse today. David writes this psalm at a time when he is in danger from the wicked, it tells us in verse 2. There are people lying about him in verse 12. People are trying to kill him, verses 2 and 12. Despite the difficult position David finds himself in, he is confident, he is courageous, he is not afraid. The reason David is confident, courageous, and not afraid is God. David is choosing to focus on God rather than on what should induce fear. He focuses on the greatness, the power, and the goodness of God. And not only does David focus on those things, he personalizes it. Right? And that, I think, is probably part of the key to raising the shield of faith. It's one thing to say God is great, but... To say He's been great to me. To say God is awesome in power, but God, that awesome power is for me. So David, in this one verse, describes God in a very personal way, what God is to him. And we can personalize it in this way also. The Lord is my light. As light, God extinguishes the darkness. Now in Scripture, darkness is often used to symbolize trouble, fear, confusion, sin, and or sorrow. Light then is the opposite of these things. Now, given the context of the psalm, I would take darkness in this case to refer to fear. The type of overwhelming fear you experience when you're in complete darkness. God gave David light and that light extinguished the darkness and the fear despite the circumstances of his life. That's why David says, whom shall I Fear. Surely we can all say there have been times where God has been that for me. Times when I was afraid. And God just shined light of something into that moment. And it dispelled the fear. It, it gave me a path to walk. Showed me what I should do. Didn't necessarily fix it. 
but just showed me what I need to do, how I should walk. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. For David, the Lord is our salvation probably did not refer to spiritual salvation as we think of it. David was probably referring to being saved from the enemy. Physical salvation. That those who came against him failed because God was for him. I think for us, we, we need to look at it both ways. Right? One, of the, one of the things we see with God is God often reminds us of all He's done in order to encourage us to trust Him. Right? So think about, for instance, the Israelites. They're wandering in the desert because of their own choices. And how many times did they maybe have not enough food for a particular moment, not enough water, and they begin to be like, God just brought us out here to kill us. And, and God would say something along the lines of, really? I mean, you saw all I did in Egypt. I mean, all, all that stuff I did, you really think? I did all that to get you out of Egypt. There's like this pillar of fire in the night and a pillar of cloud in the day. And I did all of this and all of that's there. And I brought you out here to let you die. You don't even know me at all. I think for us, what we would do is, in these times when we're afraid, we would say, did Jesus really die? For God to just abandon me in a moment like this? I mean, you think about it. God didn't deliver us with these 12 plagues on another nation. He sent His only begotten Son to die a terrible death in our place. He, I mean, think about it. Just think about it. Think about it. Think about it. Think about all that had to happen. From the message of Jesus to go from Jerusalem to God. Hey. It's kind of, I mean, there was no Facebook or Twitter or social media or Fox or CNN. There were just people who were devoted to God, filled with the Spirit, and they went across the world. Did God really send Jesus to die and then raise Him from the dead and send the message of the cross from Jerusalem to Gaiman just to leave us and abandon us in a moment of despair and trouble? No. That doesn't make any sense at all. The Lord is my salvation. Surely the God who has been for me in the past will be for me in the future. And then, God is the, the Lord is the strength of my life. The word for strength of my life, in some translations, has it as stronghold or fortress. And it pictures a place where you're safe from the attacking hordes. For fortress was sturdy enough, no enemies could conquer you while you were in it. Now God had certainly been that for David. David, once he was anointed as king, he began to face opposition from King Saul almost immediately. And yet God protected him. And many times all of the people basically turned against him. And the only place he could go was the Lord who was his strength and his Refuge. God was the strength of His life. We could say that as well. Think about the many times you've ran to God in the midst of trials and hardships and storms. Think about the times you've received comfort. Think about the times you have felt safe. There's been peace come upon your anxious soul as you have cried out to the Lord. Martin Luther, in the midst of a life-threatening persecution, he wrote of the Lord, A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of moral ills 
prevailing. God is the strength of our life. As such, He is our bulwark, never failing. And when we focus on God as the strength of our lives, we're reminded God has not abandoned us. He will not abandon us. There is peace. There is comfort. There is safety with Him and in Him. And this becomes the antidote for fear. We can run to the Lord and find God is our light, our salvation, the strength of our life. But again, what do we have to do? I have to believe. I have to believe this is true of the Lord. I have to believe. I don't have to be afraid because of the Lord and what He is to me. And then I have to do what it takes to make this personal. You know what? The Lord is my life. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is the strength of my life. And that's how we raise the shield of faith and we fight against fear. And I believe that what we've seen of fear in our culture right now is only going to get worse in the next few weeks. And right now, we're not afraid because we are far removed from the virus in our community. But it may not be that way the rest of this week may not be that way the rest of this month. And it's easy for us to sit 400 miles away from the nearest case and say, oh, those people are so silly and how fearful they are. But what about next week when there is a diagnosed case in Guyman? Hooker, Goodwell, Texoma. That's when we have to raise the shield of faith. That's when we have to say, the Lord is my life, my salvation. The strength of my life. I will not let fear control me. All of us can look at our lives. And we see which fiery darts are most effective against us. No matter which fiery dart has the greatest power and influence in our lives. The shield of faith can always extinguish it. We have to believe though. We have to believe Jesus. He is who he said he is. He can do what He said He can do. His promises are real. His promises are right. And I will live in light of those truths. Are you being hit by Satan's fiery darts today? If so, we're going to take time and pray right now. And you spend time calling out to God and asking you to help you believe what He has said. To give you the strength to adjust your life. Accordingly, let's pray.